The idea of digital sovereignty is really about questions of control. Who is able to control that data and on what terms? Data spaces are a systemic approach to increase trust and sovereignty in sharing data. And no matter how much there is a desire for increased control, in reality, cooperation is absolutely essential. Hello and welcome to Insight Story, Tech Trends Unpacked for Business Leaders, the podcast that gives you the insight you need to make the right decisions about how to use tech to benefit your organization. I'm Susie O'Neill and this is brought to you by Kaspersky, the cybersecurity specialists. This time we're asking, what is digital sovereignty and why does it matter to your business? increasingly interconnected world, the concept of digital sovereignty has become more and more important. It's about a nation's ability to govern and control its digital assets, data and technologies. Yet, it's also a concept that has significant implications for businesses as they navigate a landscape where data is essentially the fuel that drives everything they do. It poses important questions. Who owns and manages data? How do national regulations affect data flowing across borders? And what does that mean for data security, compliance and market access? It's about making strategic decisions on how you handle and use data that could affect future business value. So how do management teams get the info they need to make the right decisions? I'm going to be joined by two people who can give us some insights into all of this. Professor Ben Farrand is an academic whose work focuses on the intersection of policy and emerging technologies. And then Silasep is Director of Operations for My Data Global, an organization helping to solve some of the commercial world's digital sovereignty challenges with the concept of data spaces. But let's get a bit clearer on the issues we're talking about. Hello, I am Dolly, your Insight Assistant. Dolly, just the help I need. We're talking about digital sovereignty and how it affects businesses. Can you start with a definition? Digital sovereignty is a country's jurisdiction over its digital world and its power to control its data, technology, and online space. For businesses, it means having the authority to manage their data, decide where it's kept, and who gets to use it. Why is that so important? Data is essential to businesses. A recent McKinsey Global Institute survey says data-driven organizations are 23 times more likely to acquire customers and 19 times more likely to be profitable. So I can see the importance of control, but we live in a global economy. How does that affect digital sovereignty? Different countries have different rules about data. Businesses must follow these regulations, decide where to keep data, deal with security, and pick technology partners who respect these rules. So for businesses, is this particularly about data control? Data control is significant. Businesses want to decide who can see, use, and store their data. With digital sovereignty, they have more say in this. They might need to keep data in specific places or use certain tech to meet a country's rules. Think of it as having a lock on a box. Only certain people should have the key. Okay, thank you. Is this within your data regulations to be sharing this info, your virtual key with me here? Of course. We operate by the same rules. I have confirmed that. Nice one. Thanks, Dolly. So let's find out more about exactly what digital sovereignty means to companies operating in this increasingly digital world. Professor Ben Farrand is a professor in law and emerging technologies at Newcastle University. His particular area of research is lawmaking and political processes concerning new and emerging technologies, including in the field of intellectual property. He joins me now. Hello, Ben. Hi, thank you very much for having me. 
So Ben, just building on some of the definitions we heard there from Dolly, and again, as a way of helping people to understand, uh, let me pose a hypothetical. If a French company's data is stored on servers in America, which country's regulations would that be subject to? Well, that's an interesting question. Under the General Data Protection Regulation uh, implemented by the European Union, the general principle is that if that data is about European Union citizens and there's any potentially identifying information there that uh, could be considered as either personal data or sensitive personal data, which is a heightened category of protection, that um, data should be governed by the EU's laws and policies so long as that American company has some sort of activity in the European Union. Now, there have been uh, measures, and uh, some of your listeners may be familiar with things such as the Schrems decisions, where there have been discussions about the extent to which the United States is compliant with these principles, and whether there can actually be any sharing of data with the United States on that basis. The European Union has become increasingly concerned with what happens with its data outflows. This means that if the data concerns uh, European citizens, then the European Union's position is that that law is applicable to that data, regardless of where it's being sent to. Right. And now Insight Story, we're aimed at businesses trying to make those strategic decisions, and they don't always have the same priorities as those nations. So what do you think are the challenges for companies when it comes to operating within these frameworks? The challenge, really, more than anything else, is that... Digital sovereignty is really a question of contemporary geopolitics. So we're seeing that there are increasing uh, tensions between states, but there is also a level of concern over the power of big uh, corporations as well. So if you look at the origins of the EU's digital sovereignty agenda, a lot of this is based around the concerns over the power of very big market players, particularly in the United States, which they refer to as GAFAM, which covers Google, Amazon, uh, Facebook, uh, Microsoft, Apple but also in terms of Chinese companies as well. So uh, companies such as uh, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, etc. Now, it may not always be the case that the state actors and the private actors are aligned, but nevertheless, the concern is that if data is being transferred to other places, for example, regardless of the relationships that the European Union or private sector actors may have in the European Union, there may nevertheless be the impact of geopolitics and sort of national regimes, regulations, or even just uh, policies that could have a potential detrimental impact on those European Union interests. So the idea of digital sovereignty uh, when applied to data is really about questions of control. Who is able to control that data and on what terms? So corporations, particularly operating within the European Union, need to be thinking very carefully about who it is they're interacting with in other states, but also having an eye to international politics as much as just corporate reality. What is happening in the world at this point in time that could potentially shape the responses to particular countries and the companies based within them at some point in the immediate future? Companies that are really thinking internationally. So, for example, if I'm running a, a, a tech firm in India and I want to start doing more trade internationally, Within the business, do you think it's important, Ben, that there are people specifically dedicated to looking at, at data security and involved in the, the digital sovereignty discussions? Yes, very definitely. Generally, they need to have somebody that is aware of the general data protection regulation, its requirements, and what it requires for that company to be compliant. So within the European Union and the UK, because of the implementation of the GDPR before the UK left the European Union, we have data protection officers whose positions are essentially one of data controller where they have an idea of how exactly data should be managed, what sort of security protocols there should be over that data, the purposes for which it should and should not be used. 
and having somebody that is an equivalent of a data protection officer within those companies that's able to provide that sort of oversight definitely makes it easier for those companies to engage with the European Union and the, the companies operating inside it. And you, you've said in the past that the sovereignty agenda is much about international trade, is about the technology. Can you talk a bit more about that and, and then what that could mean for business? The issue with digital sovereignty, is it goes far beyond just the purely digital. Digital sovereignty really covers the entire supply chain from the critical raw materials that are used for producing semiconductors all the way through to the provision of cybersecurity services uh, to end users. What this means is that because there is increasing geopolitical concern over things such as control and access to these natural resources, and a good example of this is the way that supply chains for semiconductors largely seem to collapse at during certain points during the lockdown, where particular German manufacturers found they were not able to get the semiconductors required for the automobile industry. As a result, there's been an increasing focus on the part of the European Union, but also increasingly China and the US as well, to ensure control over these resources and to ensure that in the event of more supply chain shocks, they are able to still provide their companies and their citizens with the technologies that are required. Interdependence is just the nature of 21st century life. And no matter how much there is a desire for increased control and this idea of demonstrating the sovereignty of different regional actors, in reality, these supply chains have become so global, they've become so interdependent that cooperation is absolutely essential. There is no way that we can replace cooperation, trade agreements, relationships with other states, other companies within those states with some system of what they call pure uh, strategic autonomy where you are completely self-sufficient. In terms of how a lot of these supply chains work, this is just not feasible in the long term, which means that there is always going to be an element of trying to cooperate, even if there is this uh, idea of digital sovereignty in the background. Yeah, so digital sovereignty isn't just about compliance, is it? It's about strategic planning and ethics. So how can organizations make sure they're doing the right thing? And where can they get the info they need to keep up with developments? It's important to bear in mind that digital sovereignty is essentially still something that's happening very much at the level of states. It's something that states are thinking about rather than necessarily transferring in all cases to specific concrete obligations on individual companies. This will often come downstream in the form of particular regulatory requirements, for example. Also, not only this, this sort of the stick of regulation, but also carrots as well. So thinking about the CHIPS Act, for example, there is a lot in this uh, legislation about investment, how uh, companies can actually cooperate and then uh, seek uh, funding, essentially, for diversification of supply chains for improving trade relations with third parties in such a way that it actually helps to build up general resilience at the international level. Increased uh, cooperation there is really sort of central to what's happening, but it is actually being underscored by actions at the state level to try and facilitate some of this inter-state trade. And let's talk about something everyone seems to have an opinion on, social media. Um, And nearly every company in the world is using one of those social media platforms to communicate to their their customers or prospects. But how do you actually affect what happens on platforms that you don't have any control over? That's a really, really good question. So the European Union has recently passed something called the Digital Services Act. The Digital Services Act essentially is a set of requirements placed on uh, platforms and search engines. The European Union has made it relatively clear that this legislation applies to content on these platforms that may be considered illegal. What is required of the platforms is not that they're able to deal with every single instance, but what it is requiring is that they have systems, again, of transparency, accountability, and oversight 
where they perform risk assessments and are able to demonstrate how exactly they are approaching these issues at a broad level. Now, how this is relevant to companies is that in terms of brand reputation uh, management, there's a desire not to be associated with things that could be illegal or, uh, in other words, uh, unconscionable. One way that uh, companies have been managing this is to just pull advertising completely and saying that until there is some guarantees that they can trust that there is content moderation, they're not really willing to compromise on this brand integrity and will withdraw altogether. In other instances, we've seen that uh, fairly large corporations have moved off certain social media platforms and other to new uh, platforms that have started. So again, this means that the effective digital sovereignty aren't necessarily coming from the regulatory side. It's actually about the fact that they do not necessarily agree with the content that's being provided full stop. And so they're actually making a decision that is much more market-based rather than necessarily a regulatory compliance-based. And in, in the context of social media regulation, uh, trust is absolutely essential. If you lose the trust of your uh, users, they will go elsewhere. If you lose the trust of regulators, they'll be much more um, interested in providing slightly more uh, top-down oversight of what you are doing on that particular platform. Yeah, I see. And another hot topic that we talk, like to talk about a lot in Insight Story is AI. And the explosion of these new AI systems has made it even more important for organizations to be really clear about safety and data ownership of data coming in, in and out of different tools. So, so what are the key things you think businesses should be thinking about here? Businesses will need to be keeping an eye on what's happening internationally in terms of regulation in this field. So the European Union, again, is, as part of its digital sovereignty agenda, trying to really be setting the global standards on AI governance. And one of the things they're talking about is regulation of high-risk systems, where they say that there are certain things that AI should just not be involved in doing, and these sort of uh, products and services should not be made available in the European Union full stop with the idea being that if they have a sort of first mover advantage from a regulatory perspective, that can then increasingly become the international standard. So the recent AI summit that was held in Bletchley Park in the UK called the Frontier AI Summit that was hosted by Prime Minister Sunak, where there has actually been an agreement over particular uses of AI between 28 different states, but including all the big players in the digital sovereignty debate, such as the EU, US, China, UK, that there are certain uses of AI that require global systemic responses. And so despite the digital sovereignty agenda and the amount of competition between different states as to who sets the rules, so there you're seeing that, again, despite the discussion of digital sovereignty, there are some issues where the big players are relatively on the same page when it comes to the things where they think that the risks of non-intervention could actually be greater than losing some sort of competitive advantage against other states. In terms of individual uh, companies, and particularly in the field of data sovereignty, something that's increasingly developing is an approach is something called federated computing, with the idea being that if you are involved in trying to uh, train uh, AI on uh, different data sets, you can actually minimize the data privacy implications by having that done remotely, and then only communicating essentially the outcomes of that data at the central level, so everything stays relatively at arm's length. So there are new technologies that are also uh, arising as a result of these regulatory interventions that companies may be interested in pursuing further. But generative AI has all sorts of other potential implications as well, increasing questions over intellectual property and the potential for these systems to uh, be infringing copyright, for example, through to, again, potentially data protection and security issues that arise from having massively open data sets uh, being trained on material online 
which may or may not be factually correct. Yeah, absolutely. Great discussion. Um, And we like to conclude every episode of Insight Story with a final nugget of insight if they're taking their very first step on the journey in any project. So for a business owner or leader taking their first steps into digital sovereignty, what would your advice be to them? What's the first thing they should be thinking about? I think the first thing they should really be thinking about is... In the context of the business they operate, what sort of data are they likely to be using? What sort of data are they likely to be collecting? And where is that data likely to be going? Once they've got a fairly good idea of what that is, even if it's just at the level of writing on a piece of paper where they think the flows could be coming and going, think about the potential implications of that. Think about what security provisions you may need to put in to ensure that data is protected within your company as well as outside, as well as... Again, if you're dealing with a larger entity such as the European Union, what sort of regulatory compliance issues could arise? So think very much first about why do I need this data in the first place? And this question will then help you to define every other step of that particular process. We know that using data successfully is an exceptionally powerful tool for businesses. It drives strategy, service, innovation, growth, pretty much all aspects of doing business. But using data securely, fairly, and in a way that customers can trust is not always easy. Data spaces are becoming an increasingly important way of addressing the issues involved in using customer data safely and ethically. Dolly, are you still there? I am Dolly, your Insight Assistant. Great. What is a data space? A data space is a data relationship between trusted partners who use the same standards and guidelines for data storage and sharing within one or many vertical ecosystems. That means sectors like agriculture, tourism, energy, or finance. Data is not stored centrally, but at source, with the members of the data space. These might be data providers, users, and intermediaries. Data spaces can be nested and overlapping. For instance, a data provider can participate in several data spaces at once. And who's doing this? This is happening all over the world, but Europe is very active in promoting data spaces. The International Data Spaces Association was founded in Germany in 2017 and regularly releases and maintains a reference architecture model. That's a software template for anyone wanting to create a data space. All right, thank you. That was quite a download. You can head back to your own private data space to rest. It sounds like this could be a way of helping businesses navigate the maze of digital rules and make sure their data is safe and authenticated. So to tell us more about data spaces, I'm joined by Scylla Sepp, Director of Operations for My Data Global, a nonprofit dedicated to what they call a human-centric approach to the use of personal data. Hello, Scylla. Hello. Thank you for having me. So we heard from Ben all about the importance of data sovereignty in the use of data for businesses. Can you tell us a bit more about what your organization is doing in this area? So I start always uh, by reminding that uh, data spaces are a systemic approach to increase trust and sovereignty in sharing data and using data across different organizations and even across sectors. So it's not simply a um, yet another technological approach to provide infrastructure for data sharing, but uh, really a combination of business, legal, operational, functional and technical layers to really enable that uh, trustworthy data sharing. 
Uh, there are a number of different data space initiatives already existing. We know many of uh, those initiatives from the market, like the Smart Connected uh, Supplier Network or uh, Catena X in the mobility sector, etc. And this is also the historical context that uh, data spaces have uh, spun out of industrial developments. The European uh, data strategy and following funding programs are now financing also several data space projects in various uh, sectors. And we at MyData are particularly involved in the horizontal uh, project called Data Spaces Support Center, um, as well as then the preparatory action for the data space for skills. In that context, uh, EU is also financing several sectoral data spaces that are preparing specifically for common European data spaces that look Look out for interoperability among different initiatives in that space. Different businesses and companies can, of course, join existing projects uh, and initiatives uh, to be one of the participants there, either as a data provider or a data user, maybe even as a data space enabling service, or then also start to explore opportunities to create one data space uh, with its own collaborators, really depending on the context, the business case that uh, they're involved in, um, etc., Brilliant. So there's lots of different opportunities to get involved. How could businesses find out where to go and what would be the best starting point to explore a participation in a data space? I mentioned the Project Data Spaces Support Centre. Um, as a partner in the project, naturally also welcome and, uh, and recommend exploring the, the website and the repositories of different initiatives available on the website, as well as then partners who are contributing to that support centre. There are um, really great uh, associations like the International Data Spaces Support Centre, the GAIAX Association, FIWARE, etc., who has done a lot of mapping and already work in the data spaces domain for a long time. And then, uh, of course, if there's interest, particularly in the context of uh, how to ensure also the human-centric principles in the data spaces to also explore uh, the MyData's members' work as well as the organization. Great. So lots of opportunities to to get involved. Now, is it just a European Union thing, data spaces, or could businesses from other parts of the world get involved in some of these projects? So while the European data strategy sets the course for emerging data spaces, particularly in the European context, it is definitely not limited to Europe only. Uh, We're already seeing significant developments also in other regions such as Japan or the US to deploy the data spaces approach. Um, And this is important because, as mentioned, data doesn't recognize national or regional borders, uh, especially in today's digital economy. Um, And it is important uh, that data space initiatives will be able to mature enough to provide the infrastructure and necessary governance for international data sharing at uh, scale. And thinking about the future now, how do you think, Celo, data spaces might evolve and what, what role do you think they will play and what will that mean for our business listeners? Well, data spaces are in a developing stage. Um, but what is important is also that those data space developments uh, remain to be open and collaborative with other initiatives in order to then really start to actually work towards a federation of data spaces um, or a ecosystems of, uh, of data spaces. In that context, the point of interoperability is really key. 
What we are also looking at is the convergence of different architectures and decisions uh, regarding those points. Uh, lastly, uh, I want to also mention that the key there is uh, really how do we empower the different users in the end to actually make use of the data spaces, both in terms of the different businesses and companies, um, but also citizens in, involved. So currently, when we are developing the design principles and the architectures for data spaces, we really need to take into account also how the principles of human-centric approach, for example, is embedded into the the setup. So when you say human-centric approach, does that mean that I would be empowered about how my data is used by a business and I would have some say over it? Definitely. And there are different levels how to introduce that in the design choices. I mentioned that one of the participants, let's say roles uh, that are carried by different actors in data spaces is the enabling service. Uh, One of those enabling services could be an intermediary that actually serves the interest of individuals uh, and citizens and actually helps to have an overview how data is being used as well as uh, manage the permissions and actually getting the the value back to to individuals. So in different parts of the setup of the data spaces, the human-centric principles could be embedded. Big thank you to Professor Ben Farrand and Scylla Sepp for sharing their insights on digital sovereignty and data spaces. If you're enjoying these kinds of insights, we have so many great articles in Secure Futures, Kaspersky's digital magazine about innovative tech for innovative leaders. We've got an interview with a world-leading expert on trust management, articles on the benefits of digital trust, and topics from this season's insight story, including making the most of generative AI and the industrial internet of things. You can find the link to Secure Futures in the insight story show notes. Digital sovereignty is very closely aligned to Kaspersky's own area of focus, cybersecurity. So to give us some insight into what that means, I'm joined by Dr. Armin Hasbini, Head of Research Centre Middle East, Turkey and Africa for Kaspersky's global research and analysis team, known as GREAT. They spend all their time working to keep threats on the outside of our networks. So Amin, what are the key points that businesses should be thinking about in this area? Going back to basics, digital sovereignty encompasses the idea that a country or an organization should have the ability to govern its own digital space like a country governs its borders. This means that corporations, especially multinationals, operating in the digital space need to provide the tools that allow the compliance with laws and regulations in every single country where they operate. An example of such is the transparency centers, for example, that we have at Kaspersky deployed in many countries around the world. And these allow legal entities to come, ask, verify, check code, procedures, in order to make sure that operations are running in compliance with the country's laws. And in case they have any needs or requests, they can submit them, of course, and they will be dealt with. And for those who are actually developing new softwares and different types of technologies, are there other ways that they can think about building in that user trust that perhaps the regulation isn't there yet? Almost all countries in the world nowadays have at least a certain level of compliance requirements from technology vendors. And cooperation is uh, is the way to go. Asking questions, like uh, trying to engage with uh, the legal entities uh, uh, that are responsible for such. On our side, as an example, we start with sharing some inf- information or intelligence about recent uh, threats or attacks that are happening in the region, for example, around the country or in the country itself. And this brings in like discussions into uh, 
a better place. We start cooperating on our side and then uh, others uh, do the same. Is it right that people can get for free and also on subscription some of these threat reports, which helps to enrich their own data? Well, we, we do uh, publish a lot of uh, our, our threat intelligence findings and investigations, and that allows better visibility for everyone around the threats that are targeting users and organizations. But also it allows the cybersecurity community to build on these findings and try to find the other angles for uh, these attacks. Are there any specific digital sovereignty projects, the research communities involved in that you, you've heard about? There are multiple initiatives that are trying to establish some kind of international conventions or agreements around the cooperation between uh, vendors and countries and even between vendors themselves. It's it's a tough challenge to have uh, everyone agree on something, globally speaking. And uh, we hope that to see that uh, in the future it would allow much better safety and much better cooperation around dealing with cyber attacks and cyber attackers. Sadly, we see a lot of attacks still happening from the same attackers. We know where they are. We, we know who they are sometimes. And uh, that information uh, is shared with law enforcement agencies. However, um, these people are not reachable. So if there were more global standards, which digital sovereignty is helping to build, would it actually be easier to fight cybercrime, do you think? Absolutely. It's like nuclear uh, global agreements where countries agree on how to use nuclear uh, energy and nuclear technology. Well, we need something like that for the cybersecurity world, because um, as of today, everyone has access to the Internet. Everyone has access to tools that could cause damage on the Internet. They can download them and try them and test them. We call them script kiddies. Without the right collaboration and cooperation around the world, there is almost no way to take down, starting from underground operations or underground groups that cooperate together to achieve hacking operations on especially bigger targets, but also on uh, companies that operate in what we call the gray area. The gray area is a gray legal area where legal matters are not very clear. Is hacking in some cases allowed? Or is the use of certain technology or the collection of certain data from this client or this user allowed? And uh, this is what we call the hack for hire groups that like currently becoming very trendy. Thank you very much to Amin. An important way to secure data and increase customer trust happens at the design stage. Consider security at the core of your technology to make it harder and less profitable for criminals to attack. This is security by design, also known as cyber immunity. Kaspersky has cyber immune solutions for protecting connected cars, industrial manufacturing, smart cities and more. There's a handy video explaining more about this new way of thinking about security. We'll drop the link in the show notes so you can watch it. That's it for this edition of Insight Story, Tech Trends Unpacked, brought to you by Kaspersky. Search for us wherever you get your podcasts and click follow so you don't miss an episode. And you really don't want to. In this series, we're diving into the ethics of AI, working out how to get real returns on your technology investments and gazing into the future of quantum computing. Plus, if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating and give us an excellent review. It really helps people find us and get the benefits of all this great insight. If you want to get ahead, you really can't afford to miss it. Till next time, goodbye. Goodbye. Ah, so Dolly, you said you confirmed we operate by the same data rules. Of course. How did you do that? Are we in the same vertical ecosystem? 
do you know things that I don't? Hi, Insight Story listeners. Ghislaine Boddington here. Are you ready for an immersive journey through the past, present and future of the technologies that shape our world? Look no further than the second season of the award-winning podcast from Tomorrow Unlocked by Kaspersky, where we bring together global experts to delve into the latest advancements and trends. Across season two, we cover a range of fascinating topics, including women in gaming, the ever-growing prevalence of data in and out of the home in telegram to telepresence, the metaverse, the concepts of extended self and digital health in Extended Self, Our Future Digital Twins, and the world of cyborg and embedded technologies in cyborg shifts. We also celebrate the contributions of women in STEM and discuss the need for greater representation in the field. Whether you're interested in digital well-being or the latest innovations, Fast Forward has got you covered. So why wait? Search Tomorrow Unlocked Fast Forward on your smart speaker or your favorite podcast platform and join us on this incredible journey.